Revelation chapter 2, verse 18. And to the angel of the church in Thyatira write, The words of the Son of God, who has eyes like a flame of fire and whose feet are like burnished bronze. I know your works, your love and faith and service and patient endurance, and that your latter works exceed the first. But I have this against you, that you tolerate that woman Jezebel who calls herself a prophetess and is teaching and seducing my servants to practice sexual immorality and to eat food sacrificed to idols. I gave her time to repent, but she refuses to repent of her sexual immorality. Behold, I will throw her in, onto a sickbed and those who commit adultery with her I will throw into great tribulation unless they repent of her works. And I will strike her children dead. And all the churches will know that I am he who searches mind and heart. And I will give to each of you as your works deserve. But to the rest of you in Thyatira, who do not hold this teaching, who have not learned what some call the deep things of Satan, to you I say, I do not lay on you any other burden. Only hold fast what you have until I come. The one who conquers and keeps my works until the end, to him I will give authority over the nations. And he will rule them with a rod of iron, as when earthen pots are broken in pieces, even as I myself have received authority from my Father. And I will give him the morning star. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. Judas. When I say Judas, what comes to mind? Ultimate betrayal, right? Even though we, we most people today, I mean, used to, we used to be a, a, a pretty literate in the Bible, but now we're not. And so there, there are things that we say and things that end up in our language that come from Scripture, but we really don't have any idea. At least most people really have no idea that it comes from Scripture. There's a whole list of things like that. But Judas, at least if people don't really know the Bible, when you say Judas, at least there's some sense in their mind that that's connected with betrayal, right? I mean, if you're called a Judas... Somebody calls you a Judas tomorrow at work. They're not saying, oh, hey, you're a great, great person. Right? I mean, we get that, right? Judas, the ultimate betrayal. History's littered. I mean, it is littered with stories of betrayal. Stories of betrayal. Great betrayal. Sometimes, you know, uh, it, it's, it's betraying nations. Sometimes it's personal betrayals. The image... One of the images that God uses in His Word, the image of relationship, close, intimate relationship. The image of relationship, particularly the marriage relationship, is used over and over of God's relationship with His people. 
You'll see in the Old Covenant, you'll see in the Old Testament, God is the faithful husband. In fact, this is what the prophet Isaiah says. Isaiah chapter 54, verse 5, he says, For your maker is your husband. The Lord of hosts is his name, and the Holy One of Israel is your Redeemer. The God of the whole earth, he is called. For the Lord has called you like a wife, deserted and grieved in spirit, like a wife of youth when she is cast off, says your God. For a brief moment, I deserted you, but with great compassion, I will gather you. In overflowing anger, for a moment, I hid my face from you, but with everlasting love, I will have compassion on you, says the Lord, your Redeemer. But you see, your Maker is your husband. This is what He's telling Israel. So this relationship between God and Israel in the Old Testament, and, and there are a number of places where it, this this language of relationship like this, particularly a marriage relationship, husband-wife relationship, is used as a picture of God's relationship with His people. In the New Testament, the same thing happens. The same thing happens. This this language of marriage, this relationship of marriage is used of the relationship of Christ and his church. That's why in Ephesians chapter 5, when Paul's talking about the relationship between wives and husbands, and he says, husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her, that he might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of water with the word, so that he might present the church to himself in splendor, without spot or wrinkle or any such thing. She might be holy and without blemish. In the same way, husbands should love their their wives as their own bodies. So he takes this marriage relationship and in giving these instructions to to husbands and wives in Ephesians chapter 5, it becomes very clear that what he's doing also is this relationship between husband and wife is a picture of the relationship between Christ and his church. It's a deep Loving, intimate relationship. I think you could see why he would use this image. Because the relationship between husband and wife is the most intimate relationship that we have, right? I mean, it's the most intimate relationship that we have. Now, the problem is, in the Old Testament, what we read is God is the faithful husband. Israel is the unfaithful wife who is continually committing adultery. You remember last year we went through the book of Hosea? When we went through the book of Hosea, that, that relationship's front and center in the book of Hosea because the prophet Hosea is told, Hosea, you go and you marry a prostitute. And so he does, and she continues in her ways. And so that whole book, that whole whole book of Hosea is is depicting this relationship and what God is saying to Israel, I've been the faithful husband. You've been the covenant breaker. You've been the adulteress. You've been the one committing adultery here. You are the one who's broken covenant. But in that is beautiful promises about how he's going to take them and make them his people again. In fact, he tells Hosea, he says, you go get her. Buy her back out of this mess. Yeah, she left you and went back into her prostitution. But you go get her and you love her again. And so that becomes this this picture of this relationship of God and his people in the Old Covenant. 
In the New Testament, again, we see this relationship. The church is referred to as the bride. We saw in Ephesians chapter 5. In, in, in the book of Revelation, when we get to the end, Revelation chapter 19, the bride, Christ, the husband, the church, his wife. In fact, as we get to the end, there's going to be this grand ceremony, this grand marriage feast, in which Christ is joined to his bride for all eternity. And it's, it's beautiful the way that it plays out in the book of Revelation. In fact, if you look too, you go further. Jeremiah, the prophet Jeremiah, when he say, when, when, when God uses Jeremiah to preach to Israel and, and to the southern kingdom, he uses the language of divorce. That's exactly what God is saying. You're, you broke the covenant. I'm issuing a certificate of divorce. Nevertheless, there will be a new covenant. That will be a new covenant, and it's beautiful language that's used there. You see, this relationship, husband and wife relationship, is a picture of the relationship between God and His people, Christ and His church. It's why the Bible presents, and especially Paul, when he talks about this issue of adultery, it's why it's presented as such an act of betrayal. It is a deep act of betrayal, is it not? Here's the question, though. Because we might say, yeah, I could see that in the Old Testament. Yeah, I could see how Israel is committing spiritual adultery in the Old Testament. Chasing after other gods and so forth. And God the faithful husband and Israel playing the unfaithful wife and so forth. But here's a question to, to kind of consider. Can the church commit adultery? I mean, if we are his bride, and we are his wife, can the church commit adultery? Now, again, I'm speaking in spiritual terms here. Can the church commit, a spirit, can, can the church commit spiritual adultery? If so, then how? How? How, how would that happen how how would that what would that look like and, and again here's here's a here's an even deeper question is it if, if we say yeah the church can commit spiritual adultery okay then is it individual i as an individual member of the church can i as an individual commit spiritual adultery or is it corporate can a whole church can a whole church body in a sense commit the spiritual adultery. I mean, think about it. If you have joined yourself to Christ, if you have joined yourself to Him, then how can you give yourself to someone or something else? How can we do that? If we've joined ourselves to Him. Yes, it can happen. Yes, it does happen. And there are some indications in this letter that is written to the church of Thyatira as to how it happens. It happens all the time. Yes, it can be true individually. Yes, I as an individual can, can, can commit spiritual adultery. And yes, it can happen as a church as a whole. A church as a whole, as a body, can commit spiritual adultery. 
It can happen. It has happened. And in a lot of places, it is happening right now. But again, the question, how could a church bought by the blood of Christ, betrothed to Christ, betrothed to him, awaiting the marriage supper, awaiting this grand, this great and glorious future, How? Why? Why on earth would we even consider it? Would we even think about it? Well, one of the things we need to understand up front is that we had better be careful of pride. And we'd better be careful of saying, oh, that could never happen to us. Oh, that could never happen to me. I guess another question that we need to ask surrounding this is what happens when we do it? What's going to happen when we do it? Well, I think all of this is sort of, sort of dealt with a little bit in, in seeing this letter to the church of Thyatira. There's three statements. I guess you might say there's three affirmations. We're going to follow the, the, the same pattern that we've been following, the good, the bad. I want to say the, the, the ugly, but it's just not there. So it's the good, the bad, and then there's some promises that are given, some statements that Christ gives of encouragement and promises. Again, these are seven churches that he's writing to. They're, they're not churches, uh, they're, they're historical churches. We're in the middle section of the seven, Okay. We're in the middle section of the seven. And so he writes to the church at Thyatira. And there's three affirmations here. Now, if you were to continue your journey, we were in Pergamos, right? We've been trekking north along the coast of Turkey, along the western coast of Turkey. But if all of a sudden you took a little jog east, and you went about 45 miles, you're getting away from the coast, you're getting away from the main trade routes, and you you sort of sort of walk through this area. And I love what one writer said about where Thyatira was situated. He said, you would come to an open, smiling veil. When we lived in Wyoming, I was up in the mountains a lot. And you would see, you could get up and you could see two big valleys. And then you want to work your way over and get to one of them. And then you would come to these little veils. Beautiful. Stream running through it. Mountain peaks around. Gently sloping hills. Can you picture it? You just walk through that and you're just overtaken by the beauty of that. I used to walk through some of those places and think, I wonder if a person's ever been here. I wonder if a person's ever been there. Well, this is kind of where Thyatira was situated. Thyatira was situated in one of these little vales. There were two big valleys on either end, and this sort of veil connected the uh, two big valleys. And um, it, there was a stream that ran through it, and this stream eventually went down and emptied into the Lycus River. Eventually emptied into the Lycus River. And situated here, at first glance, when you would see Thyatira, it wasn't like walking up on Ephesus. It wasn't like walking up on Smyrna. And you see the glory and you see the, 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 the power in, in Pergamos last week. It's, Thyatira was not like that. 
In fact, Thyatira was, was built as a garrison city. It was a military outpost. There was a group of Jews who had settled there, and Thyatira was essentially a city whose glory was ahead of it. There had been centuries of Roman peace, and this area had been very peaceful, and so Thyatira was a sort of catching on, growing city. There was some trade that was beginning to happen. There was manufacturing that was beginning to happen in Thyatira. In today's language, Thyatira was a very progressive place. Very progressive place. Up and coming. You could sense it. So when you walked in, you wouldn't see some big Acropolis with temples everywhere. You wouldn't see and feel that you were in some seat of Roman power, government power. You would have felt like, man, this is a very peaceful place. Beautiful place. Very peaceful place. But you would have gotten the feel that Thyatira was up and coming. I mean, it was up and coming. And it was very, uh, again, to use today's language, it was a very progressive place. Shortly after this letter was written, Thyatira just begins to explode. And it becomes a major trade place. But if you were there at the time this letter was sent there, you would see popping up all over the place these little things called trade guilds. Now, think of a trade guild. You, you think the only equivalent that we have would be like a modern-day union, a workers' union, right? You know what a union is. You have you know, the electricians, the electrical union. You have the truckers and so forth. Uh, the, the, these unions that were organized to try to protect workers' rights and so forth and all that. So these trade guilds were similar. So if you were going to work in a particular trade, you had to be a member of a trade guild. The only problem was to be a member of a trade guild, every trade guild had its own God. And it had its own ceremony. So to work in that industry, to work in whatever it is that you were going to be. If you were going to be a bronze worker, you were in a bronze trade guild. And you had meetings and you worshipped the God of the bronze trade guild. It was expected. If you didn't do it, then you were fired. And you couldn't work unless you were part of one of these trade guilds. There were all sorts of trade guilds that were popping up in Thyatira. Wool workers, linen workers, makers of outer garments, dyers. Which is interesting because when you read in Acts chapter 16, there's a lady by the name of Lydia. And Paul runs across her in Philippi. But Luke says that Lydia was a seller of purple. Evidently, she's involved in this dyeing outer garment business or something. But he makes the reference that she was from... Thyatira. And she hears Paul preach and she's converted and so forth. There would have been tanners, pottery, bakers, slave dealers, bronze smith. Bronze was a big thing that really grew. It's a growing city. It's a progressive city. And situated right here is this little church. And this little church is sitting here in this progressive movement desperately Trying not to compromise. Not to give in to tolerance. And desperately trying not to commit spiritual adultery. And here they are. Now, there's three statements. The first one he starts in verse 18. I know your good works. And here's the good. 
And to the angel of the church in Thyatira write, the words of the Son of God. It's the only place in the book of Revelation that occurs. Son of God. Who's speaking to you? Who's writing this to you? It's the Son of God writing to you. Authority here. You better listen up. It's the Son of God. The words of the Son of God who has eyes like a flame of fire and whose feet are like burnished bronze. This comes straight out of chapter 1. This image that he uses of, of, of himself here it comes straight out of chapter 1. It's what we saw in that vision of Christ. The eyes of flame of fire. Is he angry? Is that what it stands for? Is that what it means? Or is it, is it somehow his judgment? Or is it just that he's piercing? He sees? He knows all? It may be that because that's where he ends up. You can't hide anything from me. The one who searches everything about you. The one who knows everything about you. It may be what he means. The feet of bronze, this burnished bronze, this fine brass, solid maybe, pure being fine, burnished being the sense of pure and righteous. This is who's writing to you, the Son of God, whose eyes are like a flame of fire and whose feet are like burnished bronze. I know your works. And again, the language is such that I know them completely. I know them better than you know them. I know you. I know where you are. And then he makes a list here. What's interesting about the list is he just doesn't lump all these things together in some generic way. There's an article with each one of these. So it's something specific. I know your works, the love, the faith, the service, the patient endurance. So it's not just some generic thing about them. These are things that are real. These things, these are things that, that probably others around outside the church would have known. Hey, what about that church over there? What do you think about them? The love, the faith. Be patient endurance. See, it wasn't just works. It was probably their character as well. This is what they're like. Wouldn't it be great if somebody not connected with us, they said, hey, what about Damascus Church? Baptist Church. Wouldn't it be great? This is them. This is what they're like. Now, it's not just anybody saying this. This is the Son of God saying this. About you. And I know it. And also he says this. And that your latter works exceed the first. You're maturing. I wonder. I just. I just. And I don't know. I can't say this definitively from the text. But I just wonder if. Thyatira was sort of this progressing place. Right? And, and it's sort of happening. And it's growing. And I wonder if there's not some kind of play here. You know what? You have this. And it's growing. You're maturing. You're progressing. You're progressing in your faith. That's a good thing. That's a good thing. Your latter works exceed the first. But, here it comes. But, and the but here is a strong turn. It's not like in conversation where you would say, yeah, but. It's more like this, 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 but. It's a strong turn. And he does this with, with the churches where he mentions something negative about them. But I have this against you. Jezebel. Now, I would imagine, probably not like Judas. Judas would probably be more recognized than Jezebel, right? But if you just stand in a crowd and holler, Jezebel. I would say, even though 
even though there's not really a biblical background with most people now, but at least Jezebel, they'd probably think, hmm, that's probably not something good. Right? I don't know. Today, you know, they may say, yeah, I love Jezebel. I don't know. Jezebel's one of those names, though. Judas. Jezebel. This is what Jesus says. Now, it's not, Jezebel was not resurrected from the dead. So don't think that. But there was a woman. Is she in the church? Doesn't really say she was in the church. I take it she probably was in the church. Or maybe she was some one of these progressive teachers in Thyatira. But evidently there's this woman, and if she was in the church, then there's this woman who's in the church, and Jesus says, this is what I have against you. You tolerate that woman. You put up with it. You turn your head. You got some great things about you, and you're growing. But in this one area, you got a serious problem. And that problem is this woman who, one, is calling herself, evidently, who calls herself, he says here, a prophetess. So she's claiming teaching. That's the only reason she would claim to be a prophetess is that she's teaching. And she's, she's claiming, and Jesus uses her, that woman Jezebel. And again, not literal Jezebel. But she's claiming, she's claiming proclaiming herself a prophetess, and she's teaching. And this is what she's teaching. And, and she's teaching and seducing my servants. Are servants here the leaders? Would this be the elders of the church? Don't know. Influential people within the church. But whatever it is, here's this woman claiming to be a prophetess. She's teaching. She's seducing people. She's, she's sort of wooing these people in. She's spinning her webs just like Jezebel of the Old Testament. You remember that woman? Go back to 1 Kings. She was the wife of Ahab. She was a wicked woman. She was wicked, domineering. She was wicked. And she pushed Baal worship. Ahab evidently was this weak king. And you remember she comes on the scene. She's Ahab's wife. And she begins to dominate him. And uh, there was the incident where, you know, he wants the vineyard. And Naboth won't give him the vineyard. And Ahab's kind of whining and complaining. Oh, I want the vineyard. And Jezebel says, why don't you lead? Stand up. Be a man. Why don't you lead? I'll take care of it. You want the vineyard? I'll get you the vineyard. And she cooked up this scheme. Had Naboth killed and all that happened with all that. And then she went to Ahab and said, there's your vineyard. Quit whining and just do what you got to do as a leader. She goes after Elijah. She goes after Elijah. They have this running feud with, with you know, and, and eventually, through Elijah, God says, listen, Ahab's going to die a horrible death, and that Jezebel, she's going to die a horrible death. And you get all the way to 2 Kings chapter 9, you get there and you see that horrible death and what happened to Jezebel. She dolls herself all up, and I forget who, who it was that was coming in, and he sees her and he says, throw her down, and so the servants throw her down, and her body kind of, you can imagine what happens if you're thrown out of a window. He goes in, they come back to try to bury her, and the dogs had eaten her. This is exactly what God said would happen to Jezebel. She was wicked. She was evil. 
And so if Jesus is saying of a woman, and if she's in the church, and Jesus is using Jezebel of this woman, she ain't a good lady. She's claiming to be a prophetess. She's teaching, she's seducing, and she's teaching, and she's having uh, these servants, my servants, practice sexual immorality and to eat food sacrificed to idols. All of this would have been wrapped up probably in some way with these trade guilds where you would go and, and you go to work and you work and then after work you go to these trade guild events and so forth and you're there with all these other workers and you're worshiping idols and who knows what else is going on. And if you're a believer and you got to work and you got to feed your family and you got to take care of your kids and you can't work unless you're part of a guild, what are you going to do? Well, just move. Well, it wasn't that easy at this time. We're a mobile society and we could pick up and move, right? That wasn't the case here. What are you going to do? Father? Husband? You going to compromise? You going to come up with some excuse of, well, man, I got to do it. And then all of a sudden, there's a woman. And she might be saying something like this. You remember, this was the trouble in Pergamos. This is exactly what was going on in Pergamos. It's okay, just compromise. You'll be okay, God understands. And so here comes this woman who is teaching, and she claims to be a prophetess, so maybe she's got some authority here. And she's saying... Basically, hey, it's okay, compromise. Go along with it. I mean, after all, you've got to feed your family, right? So she's seducing to practice sexual immorality, to eat food sacrificed to idols. Jesus says about her, I gave her time to repent, but she refuses to repent of her sexual immorality. Behold, I will throw her onto a sick bed. Her bed of pleasure is now going to be a sick bed. Don't know exactly what he's referring to. And those who commit adultery with her, I will throw into great tribulation unless they repent of her works. And I will strike her children dead. And all the churches will know that I am he who searches mind and heart. Mind and heart here, literally kidneys. And it's the innermost part of a person. It's Eastern thought here. I know everything and nothing's hidden from me. You can't sneak around the corner and participate in your little trade guild and think I won't see it. And I've given her time to repent of this. There's grace there, but she's refused. She has refused to repent. And I'm going to come deal with it. I'm going to come deal with it. Man, what a situation, right? What are you going to do if you're in this church? Now, we have talked a lot, and I don't want to be an alarmist here. All right? I don't want to be, you know, the sky's falling, the sky's falling. I don't want to be that at all. But I can look and see. Jesus talked about how when you see the storm clouds gathering, you know it's going to rain. 
And he told those Jews, you can't discern the times. The Messiah is right here in front of you, and you can't discern those times. There is a sense in which we can look and discern and see what's going on around us. And if our antennas are up and we start to pay attention to stuff, and we start to pay attention to how freedom's being taken here and freedom's being taken here and these demands are being placed here and this institution's being renamed and redefined and this is, being, this is starting to crumble and that's starting to crumble. It doesn't take a genius to go. We might not be long... We might not be long. You can see some signs of this because if you're in certain jobs and if you're in certain places um, and you're an active voice for Christ and you are evangelizing, you are fired. If you're in certain places and certain things go on and it's just accepted as the norm among everybody that you work with, say in that particular office or that particular field, and it's the accepted norm, and you look at it and you go, this is immoral, this, is, this cannot happen, this is not what the Word of God says, and you make a stand and you're fired. That is happening. That is happening. So what are you going to do? Are you going to commit spiritual adultery? That's your option. It's one option, right? I'll just go ahead and give in, do it, and ask God to forgive me. But then what if I keep doing it? And then keep doing it. And then keep doing it. And then keep doing it. And then pretty soon, that's my lifestyle. Then I have to stop and say, wait a minute. Am I really truly a believer here? What if I give my heart to that and betray Christ? Am I really a believer here? I mean, they're they're in a fix. They're in a fix. And there's this woman, Jesus is saying, look, don't give in to her. But then here comes the promise in verse 24. Here's the third statement. The first statement, here's the good things about you. And then the, the other affirmation is here, but the, this is what I know, and this is bad, and you're, 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 you're putting up with this, and you shouldn't be putting up with this. But then here comes some promises here. I, I know what you need to do, verse 24. But to the rest of you in Thyatira who do not hold this teaching... There were some who were resisting it, who have not learned what some call the deep things of Satan. Now that's an interesting phrase. What exactly is he referring to? I don't really know for sure. I have some idea of what he may be referring to because part of her teaching may have gone something like this. Why, we've risen above sin. And you can go ahead and give in. And it's really not going to affect you because it's just a bodily thing. You're really not giving your mind and heart to it. And we've kind of reached a point where it doesn't affect us that, that bad. It may have been something like that. I don't know. 
Maybe it's something along those lines. So is the deep things of Satan here, is it, is it teachings? It may be that what she's claiming is this, and this is dangerous. She may be claiming to have some deep secret knowledge. And she's got this wonderful, great teaching. In today's climate, she's written a book. She's having seminars. And people are flooding to her. And she's claiming to have this deep teaching. And yet when you buy into it, you go into it, and you start to put, look at it, and you start going, wait a minute, this isn't biblical at all. It doesn't have anything to do with the gospel. And is it what Jesus is, is what Jesus saying here? It's really not that. It's the deep things of Satan. I don't know. Maybe even they're saying, look, you got to go experience a little sin here. Go ahead, give in to the trade gills and experience that sin so you can, you can identify with these people. I said Wednesday night, I don't have to shoot up heroin to identify with a heroin addict. Because I identify with a heroin addict on a deeper level than an addiction to heroin. I identify with a heroin addict on the level of a sinner rebelling against God. Same with any addiction. We don't go experience it. So then somehow then we can minister to these people. Maybe that's a deep thing of Satan. I don't know. Maybe something like that's going on here. But he says, listen to the rest of you that you're not holding to this teaching. We've not learned what some call the deep things of Satan. I say to you, to you I say, I, I do not lay on you any other burden. I'm not going to place any other burden on you. You're struggling enough. This is the only thing I'm going to say to you. Verse 25, hold fast what you have. And they have a lot, right? Love and all that that was listed there. Uh, love, faith, service, patient endurance. Hold fast to that. Hang on to it until I come. I'm coming. I'm coming. Only hold fast what you have till I come. And then here's some beautiful, beautiful promises here verse 26 the one who conquers and who keeps my works until the end to him i will give authority over the nations verse 27 and he will rule them with a rod of iron as when earthen pots are broken in pieces even as i myself have received authority from my father part of this comes out of chapter one and and we will rule and reign with him for all eternity we will have authority over the nations and part of this comes out of psalm 2 Beautiful picture of the Messiah who rules with a rod of iron. I don't exactly know how all this will look and how it all will play out in the end. But I do know this. What the promise is, is that if you hold fast and if you hang on here, I'm coming. And when I come, you're going to rule and reign with me. And I'm going to give you authority over the nations. And this, this, this beautiful promise of vindication Victory. But guys, you got to hang on. In verse 28, another promise that he gives, and I will give him the morning star. You know what's interesting about the morning star? The morning star, the brightest star. The morning. But what's interesting about the morning star is, you remember last week in looking at Balak and, and Balaam, and that whole thing that happened with those Pergamos, you got there who are teaching this teaching there and so forth. And Balaam's fourth prophecy, 
he talks about the Messiah, and he says the Messiah is going to come. And, he, it, and it may there be a reference when he's talking about the morning star rising. The Messiah. Peter picks up on that. Second Peter. In 2 Peter chapter 1, verse 19, talking about the word of God, but when he's talking about we have a more sure word of prophecy given, he talks about the morning star rising in our hearts. And it's a clear reference to Christ. And it's a clear reference to the second coming of Christ. It becomes even clearer when we get to the end of the book of Revelation, chapter 22, verse 16, Christ is the morning star. So what is he saying here? What, what is, is what he's saying here? And I will give him the morning star. You get me. You get everything. Just hold on. You've given your heart to me. You've given your life to me. And the pressure's on. Just don't give in. Hang on. How do I feed my family? You know, it's part of what we read in Acts and these snapshot pictures of the church and they're selling their lands and they're helping people in need and this and that. And God will provide. He always has. He always will. He will provide. And then he closes with, He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. This is to us. This is something to us. Betrayal. Betrayal. Spiritual adultery. That's the danger here. Don't you give your heart to something else. Don't you do it. How does it happen? Well, James tells us exactly how it happens. This is what James says in James chapter 4. He says this in verse 1, What causes quarrels? What causes fights among you? Is it not this, that your passions, your passions are at war within you? You desire and do not have. You murder, you covet and cannot obtain. So you fight and quarrel. You do not have because you do not ask. And when you do ask, when you do ask, you ask amiss. You ask and do not receive because you ask wrongly. Why are you asking? So that you can spend it on your passions. Verse 4, James says, You adulterous people. Now he's writing to Christians. And what he's saying is, when you give in to these passions and desires, your own like this, You've given your heart to Christ. But when you allow those passions and desires to well up and momentarily you give your heart to something else, you've committed spiritual adultery. The Bible calls it something else too. The Bible calls it idolatry. calls it idolatry. James goes on and says, Do you not know that friendship with the world is enmity with God? Therefore, whoever wishes to be a friend of this world makes himself an enemy of God. Or do you suppose, or do you, uh, suppose it is uh, to no purpose that the Scripture says He yearns jealously over the Spirit that He has made to dwell in us? 
But then he, James doesn't end there because we might be despondent. But he says, but he gives more grace. Therefore, he says, God opposes the proud but gives grace to the humble. Submit yourselves, therefore, to God. What do I do? Submit myself to God. How? In His Word, praying and humbly saying, here's my heart, guard it, keep it. I can't keep it. I get up every day and I say, here I am, here's my heart. And we live in such a pluralistic society that it's not one or two things we're faced with. We're drinking out of a fire hydrant. And it comes at us in lightning speed. And there's no way, there's no way in my limited brain that I can somehow compartmentalize everything. I just have to get up every day, stay in His Word and pray and say, God, keep my heart. Because I'm prone to wonder. I'm prone to leave the God I love. You know what happens? He says, okay. I'm going to keep you. I'm going to keep you. Now, admittedly, a foul wind blows every now and then. But it's not the prevailing winds. The prevailing winds are pushing my ship to Christ. And a foul wind blows every now and then and gets me off course. But then when all that clears up, confession, repentance, clears up and then the prevailing winds take over again. You see it? It's not about trying to figure out every little thing that we're faced with. It's about knowing one thing. Or should I say knowing one person. And that's the Lord Jesus Christ. And following Him. Seeking Him. And when I do commit spiritual adultery, there's confession and repentance. And there's forgiveness. That's true of me as an individual. It's true of us as a church. Because it can happen to us as a church. If we're not careful. It starts with faith and trust in Christ alone. That's where it starts. God, keep us. Keep us. Let's pray together.